It was one word after another describing all the problems that she had. She sat in that chair and heard that diagnosis and the neurologist said, uh, so what do you have to do, Lynn? Do you want to quit work? She says, yes, I'm leaving work. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator. I work one-on-one with caregivers to help them find solutions that work for them for the often confusing and sometimes frustrating behaviors that come with a dementia diagnosis. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and certified music therapist, and I work with care homes in their memory care facility on the music and memory programs. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. Our goal is to focus on you, the caregiver, offer some practical insights, and share some emotional support. And maybe we'll share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. Don't forget the wine, Mike. Oh, no. Speaking of the best medicine, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, we've talked about early onset dementia in the past, but mostly referring to a parent, spouse, or sibling. An area we haven't talked about is caring for one of your children with early onset. And it's one of the reasons why I think this particular episode is is so important, because a lot of working age adults think they're immune from this. And if it is going to affect them, it's going to be with a parent, and they don't have to be concerned about it today. It's somewhere down the road. What they don't know is how many people are being affected and how much younger they are when they're being affected. Which brings us to today's guest, an 81-year-old widower who retired as Dean of Business and Computer Technology at a community college in 2001. He began blogging to record his daughter's life with Alzheimer's in an assisted living facility in Seattle. He and his daughter are supported by love channeled from family and many of his daughter's friends. We are pleased to welcome Mr. James Russell. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. Mike and I say this all the time. We learn from every one of the guests that we have on this show, and I know that us and our listeners are going to learn from you. We talked recently, and you said so often when your story or approaching you about caring for your daughter, people say, Yours is the first that they've heard of a father taking care of his child. We would love it if you would tell us about that. Well, thank you. First of all, I'm delighted to be here. I'm honored. Your program is exceptional from what I see. I became a a caregiver with my wife in 2017 when Lynn was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. That was when we began to immediately make changes. We uh, knew that she had problems for some time, of course, but uh, when the diagnosis came, she immediately uh, quit work, and we began to care for her financial and medical affairs. How old was she? She was 51 years old at the time of diagnosis. Mm. Uh, I cared for my mother because she had Alzheimer's while she was living with us. And so I cared for her for eight years, and I thought, well, this would be pretty easy. I heard, had did her financials pretty easily. and um, But, boy, did it, was it different to do Lynn, my daughter, uh, and... Um, Whatever, what we've gone through with her. Now, you said you started noticing something earlier than the diagnosis. About how long prior to the diagnosis did you notice? Well, Karen, my wife and I had our anniversary on in 2013, and we all went to a um, vacation community called uh, in uh, Washington. And we had the whole family up there with us, and we stayed in one huge lodge that uh, had you know enough rooms for the kids to run around in. 
And um, during that time, she lost her keys. And my son really got upset with her because he adored her. And yet he was feeling that she was putting too much pressure on her sons to find the keys. He was saying to me, Dad, her responsibility is to raise those boys and teach them how to be responsible. And instead, she's making her look at her kids. And her kids were just kind of ignoring her or making fun of her or whatever it was. Not in disrespectfully, but we're just kind of letting it go. And um, so he, he thought, maybe she's got Alzheimer's. Well, when my mom died, we donated her brain cells to the Oregon Health Sciences University, and we had them check twice to see if there was any evidence of genetic dis, um, disposition. There was none. So Karen and I basically said, Keith, you're overreacting. She doesn't have Alzheimer's. She's just got all the stresses that she had. So it took us three years to really finally come to a conclusion that she was much more serious than we thought. So she was in her mid to late 40s? Yes. You know, she at, at that stage in, in 2013, she was uh, 48 years old. And frankly, that was in 2013. But earlier than that, she was dealing with it in her journals, thinking, well, something's wrong, and talking to her very close classmate and team partner about all this Alzheimer's and the book called Still Alice, and she was reading up about it. And I interviewed Lynn's friend, you know, just recently, and she said, you know, she talked about it so much, I wondered if there was something going on or some reason. Now I regret, after all these years, that I didn't kind of push her a little bit to see if I could open her up and find out what she was talking about. It's an indication of how early Alzheimer's can show up and yet how difficult it is for us to cross that border and see if we can help. You know, sometimes I hear that, you know, some physicians are telling people, no, you're too young, that can't possibly be it. Did you run into any of that? Well, we did. And um, first of all, you have to realize that my my daughter is very aggressive and uh, was a Microsoft uh, recruiting engineer in a high-tech industry, and she just learned how to be tough enough to survive in that and still be very effective and cordial. And um, she fought off uh, any definition of, of dementia. And the reason was she was 48 years old. She had three boys at home. She was teaching as a teacher. She was a divorcee. She would lose her home. She would lose her boys. She would lose her job. She would lose her income. She was terrified of that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So she, she didn't ask her doctor. She would get her doctor to confirm that, yeah, well, I have adult uh, disability and hypertension, and uh, this is um, menopause that I'm going through. This is uh, just the stresses for my family, changing jobs. This is not it. So she told us that same thing. She told her brother that same thing. So um, she stayed away from it, and her doctor really didn't press enough to say anything with her. Well, you know, that's something else that people deal with. They have to have a job. They have to keep working. They have a family to support. And they do try to not let people know that they're having a problem. Yeah, and um, she was under such pressure for so long that we missed the fact that she needed counseling as soon as she got the diagnosis. When we get the diagnosis, all the Alzheimer literature says, make sure you take care of your first self first, because when the air mask drops down in an airplane, you have to put that on first before you can take care mm -hmm. of your loved one. Well, the problem is she needed more counseling than we did because she had been dealing with that fear for four solid years. 
And all of a sudden she got the diagnosis. Now everything had changed for her. She desperately wanted to find a, a support group, you know, that she could go to. She went to two support groups for people with younger onset Alzheimer's. She said the people there were 15 to 20 years older than she was. She was not going back. Finally, she went to one where there was a woman her age and they agreed they were going to get together and talk. By the next meeting, that woman had gone down to her kid's location in Los Angeles. So she never got any serious counseling. And where that exploded was the, the next summer when we all went on a cruise. We had gotten our finances done. We'd gotten our medical set. We'd gotten the diagnosis. We, let's celebrate. Let's go to an indoor um, and inside passage to Alaska. And uh, she told me, Dad, I'm not worried because Grammy Helen, my mother, was, was happy. I can be happy. I am going to be happy. Well, the first night on the cruise, she exploded in rage and fury and profanity. I don't want to die. Um, you're not going to lose this. I'm, not, I'm going to be the first one who survives this. And uh, it went on and on. My wife was shattered. Her sister was really concerned. And at the time that it was going on, her 14-year-old son walked in the door. And he heard it. Mm -hmm. my, my, my wife was more distraught about that than she was about um, Lynn's being that upset. She understood that. But she hugged her grandson when Pam, my youngest, took her into the bathroom to just kind of settle her down. And Grandma said, Hun, I'm so sorry you had to hear it. And he said, it's okay, Grandma, I've heard it before. So, so not only were we dealing with Lynn, we were now in kind of an in local parentis. We had kids that we really needed to worry about. Their, their education dropped off. It was a whole new world when, when we realized, whoa, this is not me dealing with my mom. And how old were the kids? The kids were teenage boys. One was 14 and the others were 19. Wow. So they were, uh, and they loved her. But she, every week they went to their father's location. So Lynn was alone one week. And then the next week she had the three boys in there. Wow. Um, I was looking at your, your blog or your website. And one of the things I noticed in your, your blogging or journaling is you tend or you always try to focus on Lynn's independence for care decisions and working her into the decision-making as best that you can. And I found that quite remarkable. Yeah, first of all, you have to know who we're dealing with. <laughs> she, she wanted that independence. She wanted that inclusion. Um, and so we did. We put her in all the conferences. We sat her down, talked to her about what we were doing, tried to get her to move into apartments. She didn't want to do that. She didn't want to lose her house. Um, and then uh, when... Uh, she began to realize that there was a diagnosis problem. Um, together, she and I did all her finances. And, and that kind of helped us make decisions jointly and set the pattern. Because when, when my mother um, was turned over to me for financial services, she had a social security check, she had a pension income, she had an investment in uh, uh, an account, she had a checking account and Medicare with supplemental insurance. Piece of cake. Lynn had to resign from her work, get sick days, get uh, sick leave, get vacation days, um, get medical leave. Then she had to transfer to COPRA. Then she had to talk to her insurance company. The insurance company needed documents every three months saying, in fact, 
she was still not working even though she was diagnosed with dementia. And I had to take those papers, I had to make forms out, fill them on, as you know, send them on to the doctors and have the doctors send them off to the medical insurance provider saying that, yes, she was still in the same condition. I mean, you know, and um, so I got involved in tracking down all that paperwork all the time. And then we ran into the same thing in Social Security. And, uh, we, and, and it was there that we discovered how much trouble she had. I tried to go online to the Social Security and talk to them. They said, we need to get your daughter's permission. Fine, no problem. So we gave it to my daughter. Okay, what's your name? He is my dad, she said. <laughs> he didn't need any authority. She said he was my dad. But uh, then he said, well, I have to ask you some questions. Um, what's your name? What's your age? What's your birth date? Well, she was a little shaky on that. What's your phone number? Well, she wasn't sure about that. She didn't know the number of the house she had been living in for nine years. I mean, I didn't know she was that bereft of basic information about numbers. And um, so uh, then we had to go through the whole process of getting Social Security for an SDI and retirement income. She had federal grants when she went back to get her master's. She had filled out every piece of paper for that. And she was one of the few people in the country, one of the less than 1%, who got all her federal grant money back. I mean, she had complete control of what she was doing. But then suddenly, um, she lost it all, and she was really willing to let me help as long as I let her be included in everything we did. That must have been a terrible day for you. It was a long, it was a long three to four or five months. Yeah, the, the diagnosis was awful. Mm -hmm. it, just, it was one word after another describing all the problems that she had. She sat in that chair and heard that diagnosis, and the neurologist said, uh, so what do you have to do, Lynn? Do you want to quit work? She says, yes, I'm leaving work. She, you know, she was, she was ready to face it that, by that time. Oh, that, that, that's good. You know, all of these financial decisions are something that, you know, we're always encouraging people to, you know, get in writing as soon as possible. But I think working-age adults, especially at the age she was, for a parent to have to step in and do that has to be a really difficult conversation to have and to, and to work through. One of the things that we often notice is that when you have a adult child caring for a parent, very often the parent doesn't like to take advice from their kid. But I know as being a mother of four adult children, the adult children don't like to take advice from their mom either. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. For sure. <laughs> well, that's why she fought off going to an assisted living facility until we had a family council provided by the, well, a counselor from the Alzheimer's Association just as a willingness to facilitate the conference. And at that conference, we had her ex-husband, her sister online, Lynn, the three boys, Karen and me, and we were all in the living room. And when we went through what everybody had to do, it became clear that her husband was willing to put those children on medical care for him. He was willing to take them completely into his home. He would take a dog, two dogs and a cat. And he just had a small three-bedroom you know, um, condo on four floors. And he just stepped up and at that point, it was okay for her to go into assisted living. So we had been trying to talk to her about that. So 
when it was clear that there was going to be a way for us to go through, she and her home companion, who was visiting her twice, Lynn said, okay, what we're going to do is go visit the assisted living homes. So the two of them left and just walked in to two of the assisted living homes that we'd been talking about, unannounced, and said, we want to tour your facility. <laughs> so they, they met the general manager. They got a tour from the hosts and everything. They liked what they saw came back and Lynn said, I'd be willing to go to such and such facility. So it was a piece of cake to move her in. But only wow. after we'd gotten everything settled, to her comfort, she knew her boys were taking care of her, her house was taking care of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when she, when she got there, did she, you know, was she social? Did she appreciate the activities and being in a place where she felt safe? She appreciated the feeling of being in safe. But more than that, she came in. 20 years younger than every other resident, 20 years. And the staff promised us that she would be treated as a co-caregiver. Mm. She was the age of the staff. One of the people was just almost in tears to find out that her new resident was her age. Mm -hmm. And so the two of them, who were very affable, got to be very good friends. So Lynn was riding up the elevator with my other daughter, Pam, and she said, I found my new mission. I'm going to take care of these people. So I mean, she's a special education teacher. You know, that was her mindset, just to be caring and helping and supporting for people. And so she started doing that. They immediately put her on a residence council as vice president. She was more active in all the activities than anybody else. She was caring for anybody any way she could. You know, and they learned to find out what her limitations were. She went on a marketing program with them. She's standing in, in, in the park you know, at this community table telling people about the residents. And she says, yeah, I can tell you all about it. I'm a resident. <laughs> they said she was remarkable. You know, as long as you have a purpose, you know, and you're feeling useful and you're feeling appreciated, I, I, it goes a long way. It does. It really does. This does conclude part one of our two-part episode with James Russell. But it does not conclude our conversation. So come back for part two with Jim, where we discuss how we all hold our loved ones' memories through story. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. Bobby and I would love to hear from you, would like to answer any questions you might have, or just find out how you're doing. Please connect with us on our Roger That Facebook and Twitter pages. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.